My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Our family cat is an indoor cat. She doesn't want to be, but that's how it is. Sometimes it causes problems for this podcast. And how it might come back. But first, I mean, hold on a second. I'm going to get this toy away from my cat who's going to ruin our recording here. One second. There you go. Sorry about that. Our cat is also a little bit annoying, and she is definitely a predator. And sometimes, with no outside to hunt in, that causes problems too. But nothing compared to the kind of problems she'd cause if we let her loose on the world. Now, I can already hear fingers angrily typing emails... And I can hear the stern voicemails we're going to get in my head by wading into the indoor-outdoor cat debate. It was this debate, back in December, that turned famous American writers against one another, ensnared the entire cat-loving internet community, and probably made for a few tense Christmas dinners. It was all over a new study about what cats hunt and eat when they're outside. Now, I'm sure you've seen or heard of studies before about what cats eat and why you should keep them indoors, but not studies like this one. It turns out cats eat everything. To use the language of the study's author, who you'll hear from today, cats are one of the worst invasive species in the history of the world. And hey, he said it, not me, okay? I love my little invasive predator. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Chris Lepchik is an ecologist and a professor at Auburn University in Alabama. He is the lead author of that study I mentioned that's getting all that heat on the global impact of domestic cats. Hello, Chris. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for finding time for us. Happy to be here. I want to ask you first, because I know uh, at least the reaction to this study uh, was mixed between cat lovers or haters. Do you own cats? Do you love cats? I do own cats, and I've had cats almost my entire life. Uh, I have two indoor cats now, uh, Mochi and Ahi, and they've been wonderful pets. You said indoor cats now. Did they used to be outdoor cats? Uh, When I was a little kid. Um, growing up, we did have outdoor and an outdoor cat. And uh, when I went to grad school and learned about the impacts of cats, I asked my mom to stop allowing her cat outdoors, and she did so. And uh, my wife and I have always had indoor cats the entire time we've been together, so about 30 years. 
There we go. Well, I'm in the same boat, having always owned cats. And previously, uh, when I was a kid, we lived on a farm. The cats were outdoor cats. And now that uh, now that we live in downtown Toronto, they're indoors. Um, and and sometimes I feel like I'm robbing them of their uh, birthright. But uh, I've read some of the studies, including yours. <laughs> Thank you. Let's talk first um, just about, you know, how many cats and where they are. Because this is incredible. How widely distributed are house cats compared to basically, I guess, any other species on Earth? That's a great question. Um, cats are in just about every location people are on the planet. And that was really because we moved them around. Um, we put them on boats um, to control rats. We introduced them in places we lived. And as people have spread around the planet, um, we've brought our pets and companions along with us um, for a variety of reasons. So really, the only place that is kind of large and doesn't have cats just free roaming outside is Antarctica. And we definitely don't, especially cat lovers, uh, tend to think of them as an invasive species. But you do describe them uh, that way in the introduction to the study. Can you elaborate on what they can do or have done to ecosystems that would lead you to, uh, to classify them that way? Yeah, well, there's been some previous work over the past several decades really elucidating what we think about our invasive species. And, and cats are listed as one of the hundred worst invasive species in the world. But the evidence has really been building since Darwin. Um, He's one of the earliest individuals that notes cats being out of place in the ecosystems that we find them. What does that mean when something's out of place in an ecosystem? Yeah, so when out of place in this case means that we as humans move them to a part of the world that they could not have ever gotten to on their own. So really the standard definition of an invasive species is that it's an extra geographical range movement, if you will. So we've picked something up either intentionally or unintentionally and moved it to a part of the world that it would not ever have been able to get to in all likelihood. And so you're putting a species into a system that there may be no other species like it there. And so it could act as a predator or a competitor I mean, when an animal moves to a new ecosystem or a new location, there's no guarantee uh, that they will thrive or disrupt it. What makes house cats in particular so, I guess, quote-unquote good um, (laughs) at doing that, at adapting to any ecosystem? Yeah, I think a couple points make cats particularly good. One is that they have a pretty high uh, reproductive rate, so they can reproduce at a young age. Right. Um, They have multiple offspring at the same time, and they can reproduce multiple times in a year. So just kind of the ability to reproduce is one. But the other is that they have a, um, a very generalist diet. So they do have to eat protein on a regular basis. And that, you know, in the sense of kind of ecosystems that is going to come from other animals, and it could be invertebrates, um, it could be vertebrates, but they have a really high demand for protein but they're not specialists. So they can eat pretty much any source of protein, whether it's dead or alive. Hmm. And if they can meet their nutritional demands, they will be able to survive. In terms of the places they don't do quite as well, they're going to be limited by cold. So as you go to either the North or South Pole, you're going to see fewer cats that could just survive year-round outdoors all throughout the year. Um, But some do, and cats find shelters even in northern states in the U.S. 
So when I mentioned that uh, our cat doesn't go outside because I've read studies, uh, yours is very recent. Definitely there have been uh, many studies uh, that analyze what cats do when they're allowed to roam free outside. The reason I made the decision is because uh, I've read lots about the bird population, but what did your study set up to do and what makes it different from uh, any previous study that someone may have read about uh, what cats do outside? Yeah, I think I think the important part about our study here is that we really synthesized all the data that we could locate around the entire world to build a case that cats are a generalist uh, consumer. We did think that it would be predominantly birds and mammals and, right. and some reptiles and amphibians, but we were really astonished that they eat really across the spectrum of body masses we see for animals. And and I should note that that's partly because cats scavenge. So they're not just going to kill something, but if there's food in the environment and it's freely available, they're going to take it. And, you know, this is a lot like a lot of animals. It's hard to pass up something that's there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, being a generalist means that they are going to eat something that's available. And so we were really surprised by the amount of insects that we found in the diet and certainly even things like reptiles and amphibians. Uh, and bats. Huh. There's been individual studies that point this out, but yeah, nothing kind of total like we saw. And I mean, in one sense, you know, that's interesting because it contradicts kind of the notion that we might typically have to your point of, of birds and small mammals and rodents and that kind of thing. On the other hand, when, when a predator consumes uh, such a wide variety of species, there are some alarming species that get caught up in this. Can you kind of explain some of the more unique uh, species you found uh, cats eating? Yeah, I think we are pretty surprised to see like um, sea turtles show up in our database. And I think people that looked at that initially thought like, how can you have a cat eating a sea turtle? Right. Well, you know, they're not probably eating an adult that's moving, right? They're, they're probably picking off juveniles or eggs and that's not uncommon for lots of predators. Um, you know, predators aren't just focusing on an adult. They're looking at what they can capture. The number of insects, some of which are of conservation concern, but just I think the volume that we found was pretty surprising. And what's, I guess, kind of alarming in there is we actually don't know a lot about insects in the global sense. They're very understudied. We actually couldn't determine the conservation status of a large number of insects in our database huh. because there, nobody has evaluated them. So that that is both surprising and a, a bit scary. And then, you know, I think when you look at between 16 and 17 percent of the species in the database had a conservation concern, when you see that percent in cat diet, it's pretty alarming. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. 
given what we know about uh, house cats and to your point, you know, how successful they can be at adapting to new ecologies, like what kind of danger could they possess to uh, species that could be endangered or threatened? We do see in places like island situations where we have rare species that even an individual cat can have a large impact. Wow. When we go to places like the Hawaiian Islands, we have uh, locations where seabird colonies are and they're fenced to keep it, you know, cats out. You know, a single cat in certain environments can have a very large impact if that population is small and found only one or two locations. Even species that have perhaps a few more individuals in several locations, it, it doesn't take a lot to disrupt their um, survival because they may not reproduce very often or have many offspring. So in a lot of wildlife refuges and protected areas in island systems, and even in the continental United States, there's effort to try to control or reduce the impact of invasive species like cats because it doesn't take many individuals to have an impact. And some of these uh, species that you found, presumably uh, not as a result of cats, but maybe as a contributor, have since become extinct. Am I right? That's correct. So we have a, a subset of our database that cats have been found to consume, and they are extinct. That's based on kind of current estimates, but we know species are going extinct on a regular basis. And so I expect as we continue or others continue some more work, we'll find additional species in that category. Are you confident when you look at all the data you've studied and everything that you've learned in previous studies have learned that we have an accurate picture now of everything that cats consume, or is this still a snapshot? The scary thing is I think it's a snapshot. Huh. One of the parts of the um, article that I think it's easy to miss read or overlook it, and it's easier to talk about, is that we found that pretty much every time we went and found a new study and added it to our database, we would find another new species that was not reported in another study. And so I, I couldn't give you an estimate of the total number of species that cats impact, but certainly the over 2,000 we found are still a fraction of that grand total. Are you hopeful that the impact of this study will change things? What should uh, this study accomplish, I guess, in an ideal world? Yeah, I think in terms of cats, I think it adds one more point to what's already a pretty large set of points that cats in the environment uh, have the potential to cause problems. Mm -hmm. And this study alone isn't going to necessarily you know, change everything in the world. But I think it adds to our knowledge in a way that could um, positively affect either policy or management. And I think at the end of the day, that's really where change is going to happen. I mean, as a scientist, I can do studies, but if we want things in the world to change, we need policymakers, we need managers and, and the public to be part of that change. I got to ask you, did you follow any of the online reaction uh, to the study when it came out in December? You know, that's a great question. I, I saw the attention it received in terms of the news coverage and it's posting on social media, but I actually tried to uh, not really look at comments. I've done work on cats now for close to 20 years. 
and been involved in a lot of stakeholder meetings, a lot of closed room meetings, a lot of serious discussions. And, you know, I've had Freedom of Information Acts put in on me and I've been doxxed. And so I try. Wow, really? Oh, yeah. And a lot of this has happened years before this work. So, um, you know, it's a controversial topic to some. And, you know, my name well before the study was pretty well known as somebody that works on cats. But uh, yeah, I think that it's, it's hard to engage in social media and online in the sense of having a valid and serious discussion about the scientific merit of the work. Right. I, I think this is an important topic to work on, but it's one that it's easy to become so invested in that other component. And this is just really one part of my job. So, you know, if I were to invest all my time in that, I don't think I'd get anything else done. Well, you know, that prominent American author, Joyce Carol Oates, is not very happy with you and the other people uh, in this study. And yet other prominent American authors who are also spending way too much time online uh, are not happy with her because she should keep her damn cats indoors. Yeah, you know, I, I, I have kind of, as a side, heard from the debate relating to uh, Joyce Carol Oates and, and people like Rebecca Solnit. Um, and I know Jonathan Franzen just had a separate article in The New Yorker um, about cats as well. And so I think, if anything, it's probably, I, I hope it hasn't reignited a debate, but I do think it's caught the attention of individuals that are public figures and present in our everyday lives, but are not scientists. And I think it's made for a lot of really interesting discussion, but yeah, yeah, I think they're going they're going after each other in ways that I'm not really, I haven't really even been fully aware until somebody has mentioned it to me. Uh, since uh, this is not the first time, as you mentioned, that you've experienced this, I just want to ask you, you know, as somebody uh, who loves these animals, as as many of us do, why do you think? People can be so defensive of cats and their role in the ecosystem in the face of the kind of evidence uh, that you and others have presented uh, of what cats can do to nature. Like nobody, to be clear, nobody, not you or, or any of these other scientists, are, are anti-cats, are saying we should get rid of our cats. Um, but it really seems to have struck a nerve in a way that you really don't see with many animals or scientific papers, unless I guess we're talking about vaccinations. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it does open a door that's really interesting when we talk about um, wildlife. And I think, uh, you know, the only other species that really comes to mind uh, evokes such emotion are, are feral horses out West. Hmm. That's a very similar issue, but, but this is kind of along a human-wildlife conflict issue that humans struggle with. I mean, and if you look at cats, People may love or hate them individually, but I think as a society, you know, people love animals. You know this if you have a cat. I mean, it's hard to not enjoy a cat sitting on your lap and purring and that gives you attention or affection. Cats are a great pet. And I think when we see a cat in the environment, it's hard not to kind of be emotive about it in some ways. And in ways that we aren't with, let's say, mice or rats right. or even certain bird species. and and certainly very few people like snakes or a lot of other reptiles. So, you know, Peter Singer wrote about this a long time ago and talked about people being speciest. And in some ways, it's kind of hard to figure out what is it that we really associate with a handful of species that are so important that our emotions kind of override reason. But I think those are challenging and important questions we need to address because the idea that outdoor cats 
are not a problem is very similar to a lot of uh, the discussions related to people that don't believe in climate change or evolution. And it's not helped by misinformation. Right. I think that's the other part is that there's a big effort to discount the impact of cats and the environment. And it's quite honestly, it's a low hanging fruit in terms of issues we face as a planet. This is not rocket science or controversial stuff. And we do have to figure out what I would say are really big problems like climate change and shifting species ranges and stuff that affects humans, like uh, where we're all going to live in the future and making sure we have good livelihoods. But those things aren't as cute and they don't purr. They aren't. And it's, and it's not the thing that you see directly. Most of us, it's a daily basis. What, what can we interact with or see or change? Right. And you see that cat sitting on the window and it's so clear that they want to go outside. They're listening to the birds. Their tail is twitching and you just want to give them what they want. And I think that there's not a lot of repercussions in, in ways that if you engage in that activity to come back and haunt you or penalize you. So right. there's, there's very little recourse to have to do what might be the best for the environment if you don't want to. The last thing I'll ask you, just because I was fascinated by it, um, is as I was researching uh, for this interview, I came across a piece that posited, um, and I think it was in Scientific American, that posited that one of the reasons that uh, we love cats so much is because they are basically evolutionarily uh, the perfect animal. And you can <laughs> see this because like, no matter what size they are, they are basically the same, which is something that you really don't see in like any kind of large species. You know, a giant cat is the same as a tiny little kitten. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some really interesting work written by a couple of different authors now really looking at that evolutionary history between cats and humans. And I have a couple books actually on my reading list to write book reviews on that are exactly that topic. And I'm, I'm hoping to learn more because it's an area I haven't really thought much about. I think about animals that have strong human connection and, and dogs are one that always come up. Dogs give us lots of satisfaction and they have that connection to us when we look at them in the eye mm -hmm. and how we've bred for different um, kinds of traits in dogs. But yeah, cats are they do look alike at different sizes. And, and we have an affinity for large cats too. They still mean a lot to most humans. Chris, I have to thank you for this. It's a fascinating discussion. And I will say I have a, a six-year-old daughter. This might be the first episode of this podcast she will pay attention <laughs> to all the way through. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I, I have children too, and they've, they're always interested that I work on cats. And I think they like hearing that other people care about cats too. Dr. Chris Lepchik of Auburn University. That was the big story. If you have any kind of feelings about indoor versus outdoor cats, well, we'd love to hear from you as long as you're polite. You can get in touch with us by emailing hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or by calling us and leaving a voicemail, 416-935-5935. We just did back-to-back -back episodes about kids and cats. You better believe we're spending the weekend getting feedback. You can find The Big Story in every single podcast player. Of course, you can listen to it on every single smart speaker. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story this week. Our other producer was Aaron Pettit. Our sound design was handled by Ryan Clark, Christy Chan, Mark Angley, and Robin Edgar. 
Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. We are the Frequency Podcast Network, a division of Rogers, and I am your host and executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll talk Monday, but not about cats. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.